Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the legendary Western outlaw Butch Cassidy. So to, to beat the posse... Butch would have, first of all, he'd start out with some great horses. He was a great horseman himself. And then a few miles out of town, he'd have arranged for some gang members and, and horses to be waiting there for him, fresh horses. They'd ride a few more miles, get off, switch horses again. You could see what I mean. What I mean. By this time, the, the original posse's horses would be completely out of gas, and Butch and his guys were were off to the races. So they escaped many times using that simple but very smart maneuver of tying up the horses. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad, as always, you are joining me today. Many of us are familiar with the name Butch Cassidy, primarily because of the 1969 movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But he was a real outlaw and had a life far more interesting than the fictional version played by Paul Newman. Anyway, let's begin. It is so great to have as my guest today, Charles Learson. He is the former executive editor of Sports Illustrated and has written for Rolling Stone, Esquire, and the New York Times. Some of his titles include New York Times bestseller, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, Crazy Good, The True Story of Dan Patch, The Most Famous Horse in America, and Blood and Smoke, A True Tale of Mystery, Mayhem, and the birth of the Indy 500. But he is here today to talk about his latest work, entitled Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw, officially out on July 14th. Thanks so much for your time today. Eric, I'm happy to be here with you. Yes, this is great. So you are primarily known as a sports historian. What what prompted a shift for you into the true crime, Old West genre? Well, I did write I did write a book about a famous racehorse at the turn of the 20th century, and I did write a book about Ty Cobb, who, who came up to the major leagues in 1905. 
And I wrote a book about the first Indy 500, as you said, which happened in 1911. My interest is not in sports so much as it is, uh, although I am interested in sports, but uh, it's, it's that era. You know, it's that, it's that time, that fascinating era, I think, between, uh, say, the, the 1880 and the First World War um, and, and how things changed. I happen to think, and I'm not alone in this, but I happen to be one of those people who think that it was the most exciting and innovative time in American history I mean, even more so than the advent of the Internet in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, as, as big as that's been and as fundamental as that's been. I mean, if you think back to the era that I'm I'm talking about, the 1880s until 1920, roughly, you see so many things happen. I mean, the advent of electricity of, throughout America and the world and the advent of uh, uh, any number of inventions like the airplane, the, the automobile, the telephone and movies and, and, and just the shift in American life that was created. You know, big time sports came up and, uh, and this move from the family farms to the cities and all this upheaval that this caused throughout American life for both good and bad. So that's really what I'm interested in. Butch Cassidy fits squarely in this era, well, pretty squarely anyway. He was born in 1866, uh, right after the Civil War. He's from that post-Civil War generation in the West, and he died in 1908, uh, although some people will want to debate me on that point. But, but so he fits squarely in this era, and his story is really the story of the end of the Wild West and how it was getting harder and harder to be the kind of cowboy outlaw that we, we've come to think of and, and know so well from so many big movies. That was the theme of the movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, too. But it, it's one of the few areas in which reality and that movie overlap. So that's a kind of a long answer to your question. It's not so much sports. It's, it's that fascinating time. There have been many Butch Cassidy historians over the years, as, as you document in your book, but they've often come with questionable research, personal agendas, etc. Was it difficult to, to sort through these narratives and siphon them down to a truthful and accurate account? Yeah. The short answer is yes. It was. Uh, I don't want to whine about how difficult, but every book has its challenges, and the, the challenge for me, about writing about an outlaw after coming off a book about a baseball player, Ty Cobb, the contrast was incredible. I mean, with baseball, you have teams, they have rosters, they have schedules, you know where they where they are. They're out in the public as part of their reason for existing. They do things in public. And then each town where they went, each big city, you had, in those days, six or seven newspapers writing about the game or about what was going on on the team at the time. With Outlaws, it's it's pretty much 180 degrees difference. Is these guys are trying to elude notice and, and run away from the spotlight. They're trying to put out red herrings and, and, and false information. Then you had a layer of misinformation supplied by the newspapers, especially the Western ones, but the Eastern ones really weren't much better when they when they covered Western outlaws uh, with exaggeration and sensationalism. I mean, Butch Cassidy was reported dead more than 50 times uh, during his career, and in none of those cases was it his actual death, uh, not even counting that. So... There's a lot of, I say in the book, I think that you feel like you're on, on marshy ground when you cover these guys. And then there's the layer, I shouldn't, I shouldn't forget, because you asked me about this layer of these historians who have a rather 
fanciful view of, of whatever they're writing about and, and f don't feel constrained by the truth somehow. They just sort of uh, uh, spin out tales. I think they feel like their job is adding to the legend, not adding to the facts. So you have these books, and some of them have been really crazy about one guy postulates that there's five, there were five Butch Cassidy clones roaming the landscape. I mean, it, it gets kind of crazy and gets kind of wild. So you have, you do have to sort this out and, and you never know for sure when you're on solid ground. I try to write a book that was as, as much truth and as little legend as possible. Although sometimes it's nice to refer to the legend and, and say what we know about its veracity and, and, and what we don't because, uh, the legend is part of the, of the character. So let's begin with the man himself, Robert Leroy Parker, a.k.a. Butch Cassidy. What is known about his early life? Well, we know that he was he was uh, born in, in southern Utah, although he, he always told people he was born in New York City. He was born about uh, as far away uh, spiritually and uh, culturally as you can get. He was born in a little town called Beaver, Utah, and then he soon moved him and his family to uh, a place called uh, Centerville, Utah, and in a little cabin there. And his father was a subsistence farmer, and uh, and he did a lot of his father did a lot of other things to make a living. That Parker's Robert Leroy Parker and his family were Mormons living in Utah, and his parents had been born in England and came to America as part of a uh, a missionary effort on the part of the Mormons who settled in Utah, mostly because it was like a spot where they thought no one else would want to live because of the harsh conditions and they would be left alone. And but then they they needed people to come there and live and farm and, and dig irrigation ditches and and raise cattle and do those things so that they couldn't get enough sign up enough people in America quickly enough. So they went to England and the Parkers, who became Butch Cassidy's uh, parents, came here and settled in southern Utah and lived there. And Butch, so Butch was born in America, but he was a like a first generation child of immigrants who just in, in a way that happened all over the country. But say, if you think of like the Lower East Side of New York, a very crowded, different kind of area, those kids that were born there, first generation uh, kids, ch children of immigrants, the last thing they wanted to do in many cases was travel that same route as their parents. They said, no, this is America. I see the opportunities here. I see the chances here for a less dreary, less difficult life than you're leading. And I want to, and I want to break out of that. And of course, not everyone says that. Some people just go along and become what their parents were. But Butch was one of that, in that first group. He was one of those people that said, no, I want to, you know, just like, you know, you had all those comedians and, and vaudeville stars and movie stars who came out of the slums of New York City and said, I don't want to be that. I want to be I want to go to Hollywood. And he was he was that was his impulse, too. He wanted to bust out. And in those days, they had an expression. They would say he wanted to go see the elephant. I don't know if this came from uh, P.T. Barnum, but it was it was something that people said. In other words, I want to get out and see the wider world. I want to go out and see what's out there. I don't want to just stay on this little farm because it was very easy to just live your life in a few square acres in those days and and die in the same bed you were born in. And Butch didn't didn't want to be that that kind of person. So that was his 
his background, where he came from, and, and that was his impetus to get out and leave. The Sundance Kid, by the way, a very different thing, Harry Longaboa, he, he had a very different story. He was born in the, in the East, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, near not far from Philadelphia, and he got his idea of the West from dime novels, and it was exciting to him and romantic to him. And he, as a teenager, he got on the train in um, Pennsylvania and, and headed west to live that kind of life. So those two guys eventually met up. Actually, they met up kind of late in their careers, which is why the book is really just called Butch Cassidy, because Butch is by far, I think, the more interesting of the two. So any of the, those were two paths to the same thing, but they both had that same idea that they wanted to live the exciting life. It was, it was almost it was comparable, really, to being in show business, I think. Yeah, for sure. So what was his first foray into the wrong side of the law? How old was he? Um, how did he transition from being just an incorrigible kid to a full-blown outlaw? His first foray into breaking the law was when he was about 13 years old, and he rode into Beaver, Utah from his, his family farm to buy a pair of overalls. And, and the, uh, he, he got there, it was probably a six or seven mile ride, and, and the, sto- the general store was closed. And he was annoyed by that, and, uh, and but being an inventive uh, kid and who made up his own rules, he broke in to the store, took the overalls he wanted, and left a note on the counter saying, I owe you, I took these overalls, and I'll come back and, and pay you. And the uh, when the storekeeper came in the next day, he didn't really like to do business that way. And so he uh, he, he called the sheriff and the sheriff uh, and Butch signed his name or at that time it was Robert Parker. And the sheriff went to his father's farm and, and said, I think you better have a long talk with your boy. And the, the, the reason that crime is significant at all is because it, it kind of just shows Butch like, making up his rules as he went along, being baffled that the stupid sheriff and the stupid store owner wouldn't, you know, see this as a good solution to his problem. And his father gave him a stern talking to and all. And and so Butch had the same reaction to that little crime as he would have all along. Why are these guys, why are these guys following me? Why don't they do something important? Why are these, you know, they're morons, you know, to be spending the, the time that they're spending on me. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing, you know. And uh, after that, it got into a gray area. So that was no doubt the first crime he committed, breaking and entering, maybe breaking a window. And uh, and after that, things gradually uh, uh, stepped up. The thing about the West, though, and rustling, he was a rustler. That was the, the real maybe first crime that he could have gone to jail for. He, he wasn't a kid. He, he'd steal some horses and some cattle. You know, th- that was so common, though, out on the range in those days that people stole from one another. Or they'd see some mavericks roaming around that hadn't been branded yet. The local rancher would just round those up and take them to his place. And tomorrow, someone would do that to him. And, uh, and, and this kind of uh, back and forth, little small time rustling, if you could call it that, was was part of the life out there. It became when the big cattle ranches moved out there, the big corporate ranches, they didn't want anyone doing that to their cattle. And they decided to not just prosecute to the court system, but also hang people and shoot people for stealing uh, cattle. So cattle theft was the sort of the uh, 
entry level crime, uh, which a lot of these cowboy outlaws, you know, got got into their notorious life via the the, the rustling route. So Butch Cassidy's personality, he w- he was charming, the life of the party, uh, gentlemanly to the women. He had a wit to him, a, a class that the majority of outlaws from his era seriously lacked, right? I mean, the one word is charismatic. I think he he was he was charismatic in the extreme, and this is what everyone said about him. And it's just there's, uh, you can't learn to be charismatic or even you know teach yourself. Uh, you you just either you are or you aren't. And this is where the the movie gets it right, and and, and the movie gets it right by accident. I, I assume everyone who's listening to us has seen the movie. Maybe not for years. The movie came out in 1969. It's a long time ago. But maybe you've seen it in the interim on on TV. The movies, the plot of the movie is almost completely made up. But but the character of Butch by accident, because Paul Newman didn't do any research, and and the William Goldman, the screenwriter, did almost no research. But Paul Newman is so charismatic and so charming and so witty and such, as you say, classy and gentlemanly. That's that's the the, he decided to portray Butch as that. And by accident, (laughs) they got it right. So if if you look at Paul Newman and look at that character, Butch had the funny lines, the funny quips. He was he was handsome, not as handsome as Paul Newman, but who is. And that was his his calling card in life. And people fell in love with him, you know, men and women. They just they couldn't help themselves. I I talked to a guy. I went I made two trips to uh, South America to research this book, one to Argentina, where they lived for about five years, which is not even mentioned in the movie. And one to Bolivia, where they they both died. Uh, But uh, I met a a retired judge down there who's in Argentina who has spent decades researching and studying Butch. And he told me he, there's a slang word in, in Argentina and Spanish. It's called extrador. And it means incoming, actually, not just it's beyond outgoing. It means incoming it means I, I get it inside of you under your skin. And I, I that's how appealing that person is. And he said, Butch Cassidy was a classic example of an extrador kind of person. Wherever he went, he was charming. He had governors trying to plead for his uh, leniency for him as a result of that. And judges who wrote letters to the judges who convicted him uh, in one case, wrote a letter to try to get him his sentence reduced afterwards. Uh, People just loved him. And if you look at the Paul Newman in the movie and you want to get a quick and dirty (laughs) idea of what the real Butch Cassidy was like in terms of personality, that's a good place to go. I know that there are some different versions of this, but where do you think he picked up his moniker, Butch Cassidy? Well, there are different versions of it. Butch in the mid 19th century was a kind of a brand new nickname. And there's not too many examples of it uh, before. But if you, you know, do some semantic research, it sort of meant a tough guy as a does now even today you know by the time of like the little rascals one of them wasn't one of them named butch or the the dog or something you people knew what it meant by that time i don't know that didn't exactly fit him one theory is that he worked as a butcher uh for a while in rock springs maryland and and it is true i found that that butchers were sometimes called butch 
in the mid 19th century before the word really sorted itself out. So that may be one reason why. Uh, but we know why he changed his name because his family, even though they weren't very strict or religious, they were Mormon people living a good, decent life and they, he didn't want to embarrass them. So, uh, he started calling himself, uh, George Parker for a while. And, and then somehow, probably because he admired this, this cowboy that he met when he was working on a ranch whose name was Mike Cassidy, he borrowed his name. And then somehow, and we don't know, this is, this is one of the things we have to live with when we do cal- uh, research about outlaws in the, the wild west is that there are points that we just have to say, we don't know. And that's better than making up some story as some other people do. So I, I won't make up a lie that, that, that sounds nice. I'll just tell you the fact is we, we don't know, but somewhere along the line, he started be, being called Butch and he he served time in prison. His, his, his prison forms and all said Butch Cassidy. So we know that was what he was called at, at, at that time. So, but it was a, it was a name that it stuck. It went, the newspapers liked it. It, it sounded kind of cool and uh, Cassidy sounded kind of cool. So he stuck with it and it's, and it stuck with him. Well, as long as we're on the subject of aliases, how about the Sundance kid? Well, his was, his was applied to him by, by the newspapers after he was, uh, for a while, he served some jail time in Sundance, Wyoming. And it, that, too, has, a, has a, a really nice ring to it. And the newspapers started calling him the Sundance Kid. He, he was young and he and, you know, Kid was a common name that was applied to any, again, like a tough guy kind of name. And it was applied, you know, boxers used it and, and, and outlaws. And Harry Longaball was known as something of a Houdini uh, for a while uh, about getting out of handcuffs and, and getting out of chains and escaping from his jail cell. And I think he escaped from that prison, that's that jail and uh, Sundance and the newspapers covered it a lot and wound up labeling him the Sundance kid. You know, when Robert Redford played him in the movie, he kind of fell in love with that name Sundance and he wound up using it to name a film festival that he started, a TV channel, uh, and uh, several other uh, commercial ventures that he got into uh, a resort and everything that he opened. So he fell in love with the name. And um, and Paul Newman, while we're on the subject of falling in love with your character, Paul Newman fell in love with the Butch Cassidy character and, and spent the last part of his life or the, the part of his life after the long part of his life after the movie uh, trying to track down a, an autograph, a Butch Cassidy autograph in manuscript shops and and rare bookstores because uh, he said it was the one thing that he wanted that he didn't have in his life. And I don't think he ever he ever got it, but he, he spent decades trying to track down a Butch Cassidy autograph. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. 
and of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we have returned. Yeah, you also write in your book that Robert Redford was, was so fascinated with the Sundance Kid that he recreated one of the kid's historical rides, right? Right. He went... After the movie, it's quite a, like five or six years, I think, after the movie that he he organized the ride along the Outlaw Trail, which is a, a loose collection of, of uh, hideouts and, and rock formations where the outlaws hid that runs from Montana all the way to Mexico, uh, if you want to look at it a certain way. And, and he, he rode a great part of that and, and wrote a very good uh, a book. It's like a coffee table picture book. Uh, with great pictures and all, if you, it's, I don't think it's in print anymore, but it's probably findable on eBay or Amazon. Uh, and, um, it's called the Outlaw Trail. And, um, yeah, and that was, he came back to it almost, maybe it was six or seven years after the movie. So he still had that on his mind and recreated it. They love the, the spirit of 
the characters they played, I think, Butch and Sundance, because, you know, they were easy to like because they weren't in it for the money. And they went out of their way not not to hurt anyone, the common folks, certainly, not even financially and and not to hurt anyone physically. They, they had a kind of a, a unwritten moral code that they followed. So they were very, very easy to like. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you about that. Scholars of Butch Cassidy believe he never killed anyone. Not only was he not interested in killing, but there is this Robin Hood mythology uh, built up around him. He was supposedly very generous to people whom he encountered, those down on their luck, especially as he traveled through the West. Right. He, his, he, he, he had an unwritten rule, as I say, and, and he collected these people around him who were master crooks and also master cowboys in the sense that they had all the cowboy skill set, the, the horsemanship, the marksmanship, the ability with the rope. And, he, and some of them were not very morally uh, uh, <laughs> healthy people, and they had they had notches on their gun and they had killings on their resume. But when you were in his company and riding with him, the rule was that you did not you didn't hurt anyone and you did and and you didn't rob from the little man. So what would happen would be if they would go in a bank, they would rob. Only the bank safe. And when if they would go on a train and the passengers would be fearful and hold out their watches and their wallets and their jewelry as they walked up and down the aisles, they would say, no, we don't want your money. We want what's inside the in those days. It was the American Express safe in the express car uh, that the, the train was carrying. So put away your money. People have studied in an academic sense, have studied outlaws who've existed, of course, over the centuries and, and around the world. And it's a very common thing for an outlaw to claim that they have a kind of a populist uh, side to them, that they're out for the little man. But, but very often that's not true. And it's just the outlaw sort of bragging and trying to paint himself in a in a better light than than reality. Butch and his group, which came to be called the Wild Bunch, actually defined themselves in that way that they were and, and and it cost them money they took the head they had to take the same amount of risk in the robbery but they they realized less money from it be, just because they of what i mentioned that they didn't take the money from the individual uh citizens they took it only from the the safe so they they were willing to kind of put their money with where their mouth was and and and, and their existence sort of owes a lot to the way the west developed in reality as opposed to the way we see it in the in the cowboy movies you know what was happening in the west was was that a lot of people had had been sold a bill of goods by the government and by corporations to get them to move out out west the railroads wanted to build railroads the banks wanted to move out there the big cattle people wanted to set up operations out there and they needed, just like the Mormons needed people to populate Utah, they needed people to go out there and and be ranchers and be farmers and borrow money from the banks and ship their cattle back on the trains. And to get them out there, there was advertising done. Uh, people took exploratory trips out there and then they wrote about it for the newspapers, all in the name of getting poor suckers from the east to move out to the west where in fact 
it was very hard to raise cattle or very hard to grow crops because of the, the lack of rain out past the 100th meridian and where these same corporations were going to gouge them in terms of the loan rates and in terms of the shipping rates for the cattle and, and take advantage of them. So it's, it was almost a dystopian world out there where a lot of people barely hanging on, barely struggling. The, the golden promise that they've been told wasn't happening. You know, people said, how can I move out there? How can I farm? I'm looking at the records. It only rains a half an inch a year in this part of Wyoming you're telling me to move to. And, and, and someone said there's a famous, one of the promoters used the famous line, the rain will follow the plow. In other words, if you go out there and start plowing and farming, then it'll start raining. You know, and some people actually believe that. Well, it didn't work out that way. The other thing that happened was they gave, the government gave out to get, entice people to go there, gave out giant sized homesteads compared to what they were giving out in the East under the Homestead Act. So you had 160 acres uh, of free land in the West for one reason, because you needed that much, to, to, the, the amount you could grow in a square foot and would produce a, uh, was very low. So you needed a lot of, of land. But one thing that, that created was isolation. People were living very far from each other and they're living far from each other in very trying circumstances. And in the winters, especially those long Western winters, it was horrible. So people drank, they committed suicide. There were horrible things happening. The, the big cattle companies would come if they wanted your land and they wanted your homestead. They might drag the, the, the father of the family out from the dinner table, take them out back and shoot them and then just just take over the land. It was it was it was a horrible, <laughs> bloodthirsty, doggy dog existence going on out there. Not what we see in the cowboy movies. And this is what Butch and his gang were pushing back against. That's why they wanted to bedevil and hurt the corporations that were the banks, the big cattle and the railroads that were that were making life miserable for the common people in the West in those days. So outlaws were a dime a dozen in the old West, and most of them didn't last long. Cassidy was different. He planned his bank and train robberies differently than the common criminal of the day, correct? I think he was, he was smarter than, than the average criminal. I mean, in this way, I lucked out as an author because, you know, sometimes you, if you write about old Western heroes, you know, you, you start out with, with the image that Hollywood gave you, you know, maybe in a movie in the 1940s and 50s, and, and that was polished up further on early TV. And, and, and then you find out, you do some real honest research and you find out that someone was like a, a drunken pimp, you know, in, in reality. And, and, and you say, well, what are you going to, uh, what do I do now? Who cares about, <laughs> about this person? He just has a, a cool name like Wild Bill Hickok or something. So, and, and, and his legend has grown, you know, because of that. And, uh, and, uh, but Butch Cassidy turned out the more I delved into him, the more I found out about him, the more interesting he got. And the, and the more I thought, he was an interesting character to write about and base a book on both for the reasons that I was just talking about both because he had this populist bent and this idea that he would, he would be devil the corporations out there. Now he wasn't a Robin hood in the sense that he, he took from the rich and gave to the poor directly, but he, he as part of the, 
the Western outlaw machismo thing. And here he's not going to sound very smart because he went along with the, the average outlaw in this sense. After a robbery, they would have a big blowout in the nearest town and they would spend just about everything they robbed, you know, uh, from and, and sometimes, you know, they wouldn't get all that much. And, and then, then they'd have to divide it up amongst themselves and they'd have a big party. And really, then they were back to where they where they started from. So in that sense, Butch was no smarter than the average crook. But in every other way, he was the way he went about and conducted his business, the way he did research. You know, this was a this was a a, a gang, the Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy that if not invented, perfected this idea. And it was a revolutionary idea of having uh, a relay a team of horses set up in advance. This took a lot of advanced planning to escape because every every robbery came down at some point to the posse chasing the outlaws. You know, whether you left the bank and the posse chased you or whether you left the train and the posse chased you, wasn't too much difference. So to, to beat the posse, Butch would have, first of all, he'd start out with some great horses. He was a great horseman himself. And then a few miles out of town, He'd have arranged for some gang members and and horses to be waiting there for him, fresh horses. They'd ride a few more miles, get off, switch horses again. You could see what I mean. What I mean by this time, the the original posse's horses would be completely out of gas, and Butch and his guys were were off to the races. So they escaped many times using that simple but very smart maneuver of tying up the horses. They went so far even as to, uh, you know, if you're a racetrack aficionado, you know that in short sprint races, you want kind of chunky horses with big hind ends uh, that, that can go fast in a short, for a short distance. And in for a longer race, you want kind of lanky, thinner, more muscular, but but, but thinner horses. And so they would have them staked out that way. In the beginning, they, there'd be shorter intervals with the horses and they, they put sprinters there. And in the others, they'd have long distance horses at the other end. So Butch was smart this way. He was lucky in some ways too, but he knew that he had to, that he had to do something drastic as the, as the turn of the century came because he was Getting too well known, him and his gang in the in the, what they call the Intermountain West, you know, Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and Utah, and he couldn't hang around there anymore. So he had to they had to do something. So they made this very smart move of heading to South America, which was a drastic, radical, and sort of unprecedented move almost for American outlaws. Very few had even tried that before, and that was also part of they went down there. Not to rob banks and trains initially, but they went there to be honest ranchers and see if they could make a go of it as honest ranchers because they were so good at all the all the regular cowboy skills. And that was the story of Butch's life is another reason he lasted as long as he did. I think that he wasn't consistently an outlaw through his his career. He he swung back and forth. You know, the grass always looked greener to him when when he was an outlaw. It looked so much better to lead a peaceful life as a rancher without the, the law on your trail. You, you can you, you can sit with your back to the door and you don't have to worry about constantly be worried about being apprehended. So he'd do that for a while. And when if he then when he got there, he got bored and he realized that, you know, it, it wasn't very exciting, you know, being a rancher. It's, it's mind numbing 
work actually and very hard work. So then he'd drift back into the life of crime, the, the fun, glamorous life of crime. So partly because he wasn't consistently an outlaw, I think that that stretched out his career too. And also partly was making this kind of mad dash to South America in 1901 with the Sundance kid and Sundance's girlfriend, Ethel Place, who's often mistakenly referred to as Etta Place as she was in the movie, but her, her, her real name was Ethel. And she's quite beautiful and, uh, and just as beautiful as Catherine Ross, the actress who played her in the movie. And, and, uh, and Sundance was pretty good looking himself and, and Butch. And they, they took off for South America from Brooklyn, not far from where I'm talking to you right now in, uh, in 1901 and, and added this strange chapter to their story. One of the, the many stories that you tell in your book has to do with the premiere of the 1969 film. And one of Butch's relatives, I, I can't exactly remember what her relation was, but, but she commented that she was surprised that the movie was called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and not Butch Cassidy and Elsie Lay. Elsie um, Lay was far more of a boon companion to Butch Cassidy than the Sundance Kid ever was, she thought. Could you tell us a little about him? Yeah. The, the woman you're talking about was actually his sister, who was still alive when the movie came out. It shows you how really how close we are to the Old West. And Elsie's grandson, who she was uh, talking to, his name was Harvey Murdoch. He's since passed away since I interviewed him but for the book. But um, he was he was there with her and they went to uh, they went to they got invited to the premiere in Salt Lake City and they were standing outside the, the theater after the after the movie and, and hoping to talk to Robert Redford and and Paul Newman. And they never they never got to do that. And she said to him, I'm really surprised that they you know, your 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 grandfather, Elsie Lay, wasn't mentioned. And he said he said, I know, Harvey said, but I guess they figured who would want to go see a movie called Butch Cassidy and Elsie Lay. Right. I mean, the Sundance Kid sounds a lot better. So but the Sundance Kid character in the movie was a composite of. Harvey Longabore, Harry Longabore, I'm sorry, and Elsie Lay. And Elsie was a guy that Butch ran into, you know, on the outlaw trail. And he was smart like Butch. Both Butch and Elsie were big readers of books. They always had books in their saddlebag. And Elsie was sort of an all-purpose criminal. He's related to the potato chip Lay, by the way. But he was a hard scrabble kid at that time, grew up. His father was a Civil War veteran. And he grew up in the Midwest, I think, and he came west, got involved in all kinds of counterfeit schemes and ran a saloon for a while, which is what a lot of them did, because there was better money in, in selling whiskey, actually, than in robbing banks and, and railroads. A lot of them found that out. And then then they became buddies and pulled off a few was uh, when Butch cut out of the prison in Laramie, where he spent uh, almost two years he, he connected with Elsie, and, and when Butch got out of prison, he was kind of in a different state of mind. He was he wasn't so carefree and 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 lighthearted. He was he was kind of ticked off. He he had this quality Butch where he was the real Butch, where he was always annoyed and couldn't and sort of baffled by the fact that law enforcement was spending so much time like bothering with him. Why don't they go go do something important and leave him alone? You know. Meanwhile, he's robbing banks and the railroads, so. You know, he, he, he didn't have an answer for that contradiction, but he, that was his attitude. And so he and Elsie got together, pulled off a few jobs. And then, you know, they had this kind of a free form association. Elsie went off and did something else. He got 
shot very badly, was put in prison in um, New Mexico for a while, finally got out of prison. And Elsie wound up working for the water department in uh, Los Angeles, and he's buried today in the Forest Lawn Cemetery. He also spent some time as a consultant on very early Western movies out there, as, as some other cowboys did, silent Westerns. So he had a, he had a really long life, lived to his, into his 60s. For an outlaw, that was, uh, that, that was a long life. So he was uh, a colorful character, and a lot of the attributes that you see in Robert Redford have in the movie were actually taken from him and his life. So what did Butch Cassidy do to get himself into prison? Well, he, he was convicted of, of having a, a stolen horse, but what was happening was there, there was a lot of rustling going on, cattle rustling and horse rustling in, in his part of the world in Wyoming. And the, the cattle people wanted to desperately make an example of someone. And Butch was this sort of charismatic, high-profile guy if he wasn't the biggest rustler in the world, then he was maybe the most famous rustler. Everyone knew his name and everyone uh, talked about him. So if they could get him convicted, it would be a, you know, a, a getting, getting the word out to everyone else, you know, don't, don't do this, you'll be punished. So they went after him and they, they originally charged him with uh, uh, stealing one horse. His lawyer got him off, he was found innocent. And the, but the, while he was sitting in the courtroom, they were so desperate to convict him. They served him with uh, another uh, set of papers that he was, that he was going to charge him with, with stealing another horse. That trial was delayed several times. Finally, he was convicted. The horse was worth uh, $40, I think. He was charged with stealing a $40 horse, which was significant because anything more than $20 was – what's the word? I'm blanking on the word uh, – uh, grand larceny. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was grand oh, that's, larceny. that's okay. And, and, uh, and anything more than 40. So they gave the value of the horse as 40. But then when the, when the judge smacked down the gavel and said he was convicting, when the jury came back, he said, I'm convicting you of stealing a horse worth $5. It didn't make sense. But, but, but the court system in Wyoming in those days was kind of, as I say in the book, like a little rascal's version of the, of the legal system. So, it was kind of they're making it up as they go along. So somehow, and he said, "I'm convicted of a horse worth uh, stealing a horse worth five dollars, and I'm sending it to you to two two years in the state penitentiary, which is a, uh, the punishment didn't fit the crime. The crime wasn't the crime he was charged with. Nevertheless, they put him on a train and they brought him to Laramie to uh, to put him in the prison, and he wound up serving. Uh, he got out six months early, and the judge who convicted him wrote a letter to the governor saying he's a remarkable young man with leadership qualities and he shouldn't, he should be let out. And, and, the, and the guy who owned the horse wrote a letter, you know, came to see the governor and everyone, you know, was trying to get Butch off from the charge he'd been uh, convicted of. So that's, that's what he served time. And it was a, it was a harsh prison. I visited the, the prison. It's a, a tourist attraction today, but you could still see how, what a harsh and, and uh, cruel place it was, uh, uh, even though it's kind of gussied up and uh, for the tourist trade nowadays. So Cassidy robbed a lot of banks and trains, and obviously we don't have time to get into the, the vast majority of these heists here on the podcast. It would take hours and hours. But what was the job that put Butch Cassidy on the map as a national figure? It might have been the Wilcox train robbery, in uh, which is an obscure part of Wyoming, 
which is about the third robbery pulled off after getting out of prison. And it was very well planned. They had the horse relays. They had everything. They, they, they had a lot of dynamite with them. They kind of overdid it with the dynamite sometimes because they'd first ask the, the train crew to open up the express car safe when, you know, when the train crew wouldn't do that, they would escort them off the train, put the dynamite in and then, uh, blow up the train. And in this case, they, uh, they used so much dynamite that they sort of burnt, wound up singeing and burning a lot of the money that was, <laughs> they were going after. And they also blew up, there were a bunch of raspberries being transported on the same train and the, and they created this like flying raspberry jam that went over everything and, 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 and made the money very easy to identify later as stolen, uh, bills. But, but the telling thing about that robbery that, that made him uh, a national figure, I think, was, was that by this point, the news was carried uh, by telegraph. And E.H. Harriman, the railroad baron, who was a Union Pacific Railroad train that they knocked off uh, in the middle of the night, that morning in New York City in his Fifth Avenue mansion, E.H. Harriman was able to pick up a copy of a newspaper and read about his own train being knocked off just hours earlier. And that was both uh, increased Butch's fame, which is not necessarily something an outlaw wants to happen, but it also was a signal, a sign that it was the beginning of the end for the, the traditional uh, uh, Western robber. Because once the telegraph got in and you could telegraph ahead and, and communicate ahead, if you could, you know, any, if you can go faster than a horse with, with your information, it was very hard to escape and pull off an escape and 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 then you could communicate with the telephone and then you you could distribute accurate information that could be used to you know round up the uh the, the outlaws so the, the, as soon as the telegraph came in and was started to be used w widely that was you know a, a smart crook like butch knew that was a bad sign for him and his 19th century kind of style of uh, being a bandito one final break as we hear from our sponsors. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Thanks for hanging in there. Back to the show. What is the the crime he's most famous for now? Well, I don't know if there's one crime. You know, he was, he, you know, it, 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 it may have been that for the reasons I said that got the most newspaper coverage because the word could go out more. The the one he should have been most famous for was his his last crime because that's the one he got the most money for, which was committed in Bolivia and was again an old, very old fashioned kind of crime. Butch standing on foot in a, in a mountain pass in the Andes, uh, where I stood also, or I, I'm way I'm, I don't, before I say the Andes, I'm not sure it was part of the Andes, but it, uh, in a mountain pass, intercepted this uh, three man uh, crew that was coming through carrying a, a, a mine payroll. And they had in Bolivianos, in Bolivian money, they had the equivalent of $200,000. In, in American dollars uh, today. And that was actually a small amount. Butch and Sundance were disappointed that they only got that much. It was a, it was a slow week on the payroll trail for some reason. Anyway, that was in, in 1908. In the spring of 1908, they pulled that off. And that was the one where he got the most money. It also, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but it, it was very near the time where the movie ends with that kind of compromising the movie ends if you remember with a compromising scene in which they take make a run for it and you hear shots and 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 you don't know what happens in the end i don't want to give away too much of the reality it's very interesting but but there the end of the trail was was not far away from them at that point where, the, where they stole that money but you know it was a series of of ups and downs for but his his fortunes would come and go he'd be rich for a little while he'd blow it all at the borrow tables at the gambling tables or he'd blow it all at a big party and that was part of the life actually it's not maybe it's not as stupid as it seems because that was accepted as part of the life you didn't get into this business of being a old-fashioned cowboy outlaw to make money to build, you know accumulate a lot of money and retire someday or or you know build a mansion someplace you couldn't live like that you had to keep moving uh, and that was the part of the life that he didn't like, that sort of haunted aspect to the life where you could never rest. It was, his life is a series of fascinating 
highs and lows and ups and downs. And at the end, it was the highest of the highs and the and the lowest of the lows came came very close together. Would you consider Butch Cassidy a ladies' man? That's an excellent question. You know, he 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 had he charmed the ladies. He he liked to talk to them. There are Western scholars and 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 outlaw scholars who make a case for him having been gay. Uh, and part of this is, you know, little bits of circumstantial evidence that he was, he, he, had, he had certain nicknames as a, uh, as a kid. He was called Sally in the family. And, and he never really, we can't pin him down exactly. To, he was very squirrely about women. And, and also later in his life, when he was in uh, South America, he, he, he sort of made a, a big pretense about saying what a ladies' man he was. He went out of his way to say that he, you know, oh, you know, he's, he, you know, they would have these like traveling whorehouses that came on it like they were wagons being pulled, and he, he would go out of his way to brag about how he patronized these and how he had town disease, he called it, which probably gonorrhea uh, as a result of it, whether that was true or not. But the very fact that he was sort of Boasting, not boasting so much as just wanting everyone to know this, uh, had people scratching their heads. And when he went to South America, and in the in the time just before that too, he was like the third wheel in the relationship with Sundance, Ethel Place, and him. And Sundance uh, and Ethel were obviously an item. He told Sundance told his family they were married, whether they actually were or not, we don't know. But Butch was always like the third wheel in that in that relationship. So. It's, it's hard to say. Women certainly liked him, and he liked their company, but what went on beyond that, we don't, we don't know. There were a couple of sisters, the Bassett girls, who did claim that he had some trysts with them, right? Yeah, the Bassett sisters, they liked uh, fame. They liked being portraying themselves later in life in the they lived at least one of them until the 1950s and, and you know, would give interviews where she... She really fluffed up, I think, her outlaw credentials and who she slept with, what outlaws she uh, were her lovers and, and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, and it may be that they're telling the truth, too. And it may be that which was sometimes heterosexual and sometimes not. I mentioned in the book, there's been some research done about what, what it meant to be a homosexual in, in, in the West in those days, in a time, you know, when in areas where men outnumbered women by 30 to one. And, and there was a different attitude towards sex uh, in, the, in both in the 19th century and in that part of the world where you weren't seen as a homosexual if you'd had uh, sexual relations with a man. It, it, that was just what you did for, you know, they called it mutual solace. If you remember the, you know, Brokeback Mountain, the movie that was the, and the, and the short story, that was the, that was the term. It was not talked about too much, but it was also not judged as, as it would be later and in other places. Oh, interesting. So leaving the details of their deaths, a surprise for, for readers, uh, not a problem, but, but I would like to ask you about the controversy surrounding Cassidy's demise. Sure. Some believe he wasn't actually killed. Uh, can you address that and, and what you personally believe? Yeah, well, I think the circumstantial evidence that they died in Bolivia, and there are, I don't, that's not giving away too much because there, there are quite a few twists 
and turns and surprises in, in, in what happened in the last days. But the circumstantial evidence is kind of overwhelming. And circumstantial evidence is important. You can get, you can get convicted and executed on the basis of circumstantial evidence. So it's, it's not, it's not a small thing. It, it is true that we have no direct evidence. And it is also true that people claim that they saw one or the other of those guys, especially Butch, into the 1940s in the West. Now, two things about that. One is, it's a very common thing with outlaws, if you study outlaws broadly, that people did not accept their death, even in cases, you know, with, with like Jesse James or uh, where there are pictures of his corpse and uh, people did not accept that. And in, they, they, they didn't want that. They wanted the story to continue. They thought it was a more interesting story if, uh, in this case, if Butch came back and, and outfoxed everyone by living, a, you know, starting a new life and, and living a life in the, in the U.S. All of these guys, too, guys like Billy the Kid, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, they all had impersonators and imposters that sprung up that went around saying they were them. And Butch had a guy, we know his name is William T. Phillips. He actually may have known Butch and been in the prison in Laramie with Butch. So he, he had a lot to say. He wrote a book, Phillips, that... Uh, he tried to sell to Hollywood and uh, to publishers, which uh, you could, it, it has since been published. It's called The Bandit Invincible. It's very hard to read. It's it's not very well written, but it's it's uh, and it's historically not accurate. So between the impersonators and the desire in the part of the populace to keep their heroes alive, you know, Butch was a hero because he outfoxed the sheriff and because he bedeviled the corporations. He was a hero. The money he stole worked its way back into the local economy via the parties he threw and the, and the, and the, just the general generosity he had of giving out a lot of money as he went along the line. He wasn't exactly a Robin Hood, but he was involved in the redistribution of wealth in the sense that he would steal it from the corporations and then blow it on big parties and celebrations in the, in the local towns and it would get put back into the local economy. One of his ex-friends uh, said uh, later that he helped more people than FDR and a lot less red tape was involved. So uh, he was beloved for that. And people didn't want to see this man perish and die. And they certainly didn't want to see him like die because he'd been outfoxed by lawmen who'd been chasing him. So that story was kept alive. But every one of those stories, I think, has been debunked and the only people who 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 still propagated are the the researchers who also say that he knew Lawrence of Arabia and uh and, and you know uh and Madame Curie and 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 tell fantastic tales they're the ones that say he lived into the into the 40s so i'm sorry to say that the that's not the case although i'm i also am realistic enough to know that i'm not going to extinguish every last ember of belief that he that he he did live until you know the World War Two era, right? That reminds me. Um, I don't know if you remember that television series called the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. In every episode, he met an important figure, or was involved in a pivotal moment in world history. <laughs> that that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, it's a great makes for a great story, and people I know from. My past books, and especially my Ty Cobb book, and all people will, they'll believe 
they'll, they'll favor a great, you know, when the, when the, when the legend, what is that line from Liberty Balance, the movie, when the legend beats the facts, print the legend, you know, uh, there's a natural love of great stories and, and people will turn themselves into like historical novelists and take characters from real life and spin, give them, have them doing things that they never did. And, you know, it's my job to kind of not be the party pooper, but to find what's, what, what's interesting in, in, in the reality. And I think in the case of Butch Cassidy, the real story is, is just as fascinating as anything that's ever been made up about him. Did you find yourself becoming fonder and fonder of him as you plowed through your research? Yeah, it's like, it's hard to find anything about him that's not to like, you know, I, uh, there's a rather lengthy letter that he wrote to some guys he worked with in a mine in uh, Bolivia uh, reproduced in the book. And in that book, he, a part of his thing where he's trying to do this pretend machismo, he talks about being very cruel to this donkey and like beating the donkey and breaking his jaw with a rock. And all. I don't think it really, he was really doing it. I think he was just trying to be like, yeah, I'm as crass and as vulgar as you guys. And, and that disappointed me, you know, because everything else about him is so uh, interesting. And, you know, he's he's a guy that could he could approach when he when he approached the guy who was carrying the payroll of two hundred thousand dollars in Bolivianos. He said, you know, excuse me. He said, I, you know, I hate to inconvenience you, but you're you're carrying a lot of money and we have a great need. You know, uh, that, that was that was the way he operated as a criminal, uh, politely. And uh, it is it, a fascinating way that they they dressed up uh, in good clothes because they wanted to show that they were professionals. And they sometimes spoke in a very stern and scary way. But it was all about intimidating the, the people that they were dealing with in the in the, the trains and, and in, the, in the banks. And, and so they wouldn't have to use violence and they wouldn't have to use brute force. You know, they. They would try to talk a good game and show a good game. They would show up, you know, bathed and, and all dressed up and be professionals about it and, and, and get by that way with a, with a maximum of professionalism and a minimum of violence. And so, you know, they're very admirable, admirable guys. You, you, can't, help, you can't help falling in love with Butch. I have a question that I wanted to ask you earlier, actually, and I got sidetracked. Uh, you were talking about the Wild Bunch Besides Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, there were some other pretty fascinating characters riding with them in, in his gang. One in particular was an especially violent man named Kid Curry. Could you talk a bit about Kid Curry? Yeah, Harvey Logan, his real name was, and he he came from Montana, and he was a little crazy. And uh, I've, I've seen like letters he wrote when he was... He was in jail and he was a little bit like the letters, a little bit like the Unabomber letters. He, he had a brother or two that was also a, an outlaw with him. And he's a real desperado. As, as I think I say in the book, I'm trying to remember the line now. He said he didn't just kill people. He killed people uh, in Jew Jake's saloon, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it was all this tough, harsh, vulgar life that he lived. And. Butch wasn't judgmental about him. He accepted him into the gang because he admired his uh, marksmanship and his horsemanship and his his ropesmanship, if that's a word. And uh, but he kept him under wraps, and he uh, he had to talk to him a couple of times. There's a fascinating uh, exchange that the newspapers reported on it that Wilcox train robbery, where uh, where Harvey 
cracks uh, the, the engineer over the head with the, his pistol. And Butch says to him, you know, back off. He said, you know, we're not going to hurt anyone. We, we, you know, you, you'll kill someone if you keep this up here. You know, so uh, it's it, it, he, was, he, was a, he, he was a wild man that, that Butch had to keep under wraps. And Harvey Logan was also what part of the myth was that Harvey Logan was with them in, in South America. That wasn't the case because Logan committed suicide after he was cornered uh, after a, a, a train robbery that he uh, after those guys, the rest of the gang went to South America. And as frequently happened in those days, the, if, if a guy was cornered, he might he might kill himself rather than face those endless stretch of years in those wild west prisons. So Logan was a was a wild man and very much in contrast to uh, Butch Cassidy. And Butch Cassidy was very particular about who he allowed to join the gang. And at one point you write that his own brother, Dan, uh, begged to ride with him and and he pretty much brushed him off, didn't he? He said, you're too slow-witted, you're too easy to catch. And shortly after he said that, Dan got was involved in some stagecoach robbery and was caught and was sent to prison for a long stretch. Uh, and the uh, sort of interesting thing is that the, the nearest federal prison was in Detroit. And, uh, and I think the crime was committed in Wyoming. One of the big things that, that allowed the outlaw culture to spread was that law enforcement was so thin on the ground in those days. There were so few lawmen. There might be a sheriff and a deputy here, and then you might have to go 600 miles before you found the next sheriff and deputy. And then the prisons and jails were very far apart. And, uh, you know, transporting a guy from where you arrested him to the jail was often a trip of several days. And uh, so that got complicated, you know. So, uh, but, but Dan was never, you know, Dan went straight after and, uh, and I think had a long life. He moved back to the family farm in, in Utah and, and lived there with, it, with Butch's uh, parents, moved back home. So give us the details of how people can buy your book. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, the book is called Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. And it's published by Simon & Schuster. And, and uh, uh, you can find it on, uh, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Bookstores are open in your area for curbside pickup or whatever the deal is. Uh, it's a major publishing house. My name is Charles Learson and my website is Learson.com. It's very hard to spell my last name because it's L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. Uh, but if you look up Butch Cassidy, uh, True Story of American Outlaw, you'll, you'll, you'll find me and then you could get to my website. There's an excerpt there. There's information about the books, information about my other books. If you're like me and you're fascinated by this period of American history, the late 19th century, the early 20th century, then you might find this book and, and some of my other books uh, in- entertaining. I hope you do. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Well, thanks so much, Eric. It's been fun talking to you. You made it easy. Again, I have been speaking to Charles Learson. His book is called Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis and have a safe tomorrow. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.